fasten your seatbelt. I'm taking you for the ride of your life. I'm going to show you what this car can really do. Are you ready? I am ready. Hang on. Okay. Here we go. Hold on to your butts. Go get him, kid. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. Not a tumor at all. As if. You're going to ask me. So you can go ahead and ask me what you're going to ask me. And my natural response could be to get offended. Hey, want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, all right, all right. You're listening to the 30-something movie podcast. One movie each week, 30 years in the making. That's right. It's the 30-something movie podcast. Your host, John Reed. And typically, we are the 30-something movie podcast. We're going to jump into the world of 90s music and a book this time around. So very, very quickly, as I usually do with our movie episodes, we're going to spoil things a little bit. So we're going to talk freely about this book. And if you haven't read it yet, I'm really going to recommend that you go pick it up. It was so much fun to read, so much 90s nostalgia in there and just you kind of felt like you were along for the ride with the the main character in particular, but it was so much fun. I'm not going to spend a ton, ton of time talking about it, though, because I'm going to let the author, who's here with me for this episode, talk more about it. But just to say, we are going to probably, in the course of our conversation, spoil a few things. So I'm going to really recommend that you just go pick this up, and I'll let him tell you where you can go find copies of this. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Andy Fry. Andy, thank you so much for being here with me. Thanks. I'm glad to be the first, maybe the first 50-something on the 30-something podcast. We had the only other author we've had on, we had several years ago, and I saw that he left a note, left a review in the in your book, was Kevin Smokler. Yeah. So we had him on one time before, too. So, yeah, no, I'm super, super excited about this. And that's our podcast right now is kind of, we were in the 80s several years ago, and we've been kind of following the whole idea of sticking to, to 30 years ago. So we're currently in 1992. So it was fun to get a chance to read your book and just jump back into the 90s and and just kind of relive some of the some of the music that you were talking about. I'm like, yep, I remember that. I remember this, the events in Chicago from having lived in Chicago starting in the 90s, and it just just fun to just have a, a trip down memory lane, just fun 90s nostalgia. So, yeah, I'm yeah. so excited. But tell us a little bit about you. Like, what's what's your background? Well, before I wrote 90 Days in the 90s, I spent a good decade or so kind of evolving as a writer. Like, I, I, I've been professionally a writer, mostly on a freelance and project basis for since pretty much, like, let's just say about a decade. Because it kind of came to fruition. Like, I've always, it's, when you have a hobby that you love, it's just something you always do, whether it's building model airplanes or trivia or, I don't know, quilting, knitting, dog training, whatever. I mean, there are certain things that we love that we've typically, either we can't do them professionally or we don't even think about not doing them because we can't make a living doing them. But I started, I, I was sort of dabble with writing all the time. Back in the 90s, very 90s things, my best friend and I, we had a zine called Suspect where we got us into some shows for free, some media passes, reviewed some records, reviewed some albums, just kind of talked about pop culture. And and that was the thing that we did in the 90s. And then we, when websites and blogs came out, we did that kind of thing too. So that kind of all was under the, I guess, under the radar. And 
by the time I got onto social media in 2009, when sort of everybody about my age now did, uh, I just started kind of dabbling. And I don't know if you remember, like on Facebook, we'd write these things called notes. And a lot of times the notes was like 15 things about me and my favorite food is. And one thing I just like, and we'd tag our friends and annoy the hell out of them. I started doing mine about sports. And I just had a couple of people, like a couple of friends back home, read them and kind of tell me like, yeah, you should maybe consider writing, writing for the local newspaper or whatever. And it was sort of always a goal. And long story short, I, I was in business and sales for a better part of 20 years, everything from like handholding, you know, like futures traders of the board of trade on how to use their software and either trying to prevent them from losing $10,000 a trade or, or breaking the news to them that they actually did make the trade that lost money to selling currencies, selling insurance, selling retirement plans, selling investments. So kind of like when you spend time in your life, either telling somebody on the tech side that they lost $10,000 and it is their fault because they clicked on the wrong thing or they just didn't pay attention to what they're doing. Or you actually ask people for their own money to like put away for retirement or to kind of whatever it is like, Asking an editor to review an idea, knowing that they may say they never may never respond, they may shoot you down, they may say, Oh, we already got that. Like then then the fear kind of goes away. So in about 2009, 2010, I just started kind of building some relationships, pitching to some things, thinking like if I get to write for the Chicago Tribune a guest column or ESPN once in the next five years, then I'm gonna be cool with that. And I blew through that goal in about probably about probably about nine months. I think I wrote my, let's say like within about a year. Anyway, I wrote my first piece for ESPN page two, which was kind of like the weird sports news page, extreme sports, all that stuff in July of 2011 about kind of a, kind of an up and coming, not so famous, weird sport called fistball, which fistball sounds mildly pornographic, but it's actually like kind of a variant of, of volleyball. that's played in Scandinavia and South Africa and Brazil and there was a ragtag team in Wisconsin that was like Team USA. And I'm literally writing this article, and I'm talking to the team captain who's smoking a cigarette at halftime while I'm talking to him. So that's the, what that's the kind of stuff I wrote about with sports going on. I just kind of uh, played Frogger from there, from like one opportunity to the next, covered high school football on the south side for ESPN Chicago. And then I got the chance to kind of interview some aging rock stars about the sports hankerings. And then fast forward to like 2017, I'm covering the World Series for Rolling Stone. So it's been a good ride. And along the, along the way, like if you're a writer, another thing you want to do is write a book either because you think you have a good story in mind or you want to know if you can write a book. So that's kind of my writing career starting at age 39 and a snapshot. And now I'm 50 and I'm promoting this book kind of just to see how far I can, just to kind of get the word out because I love the story and I love putting myself in the nineties. And that's part of what helped me write 90 days in the nineties a book that took like five years to write, but it was actually fun. So it didn't seem like it took five years, but yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah it's an evolution of a lot of things. Just like any hobby turned into a career, I guess I'm one of the few lucky ones, but I kind of always saw it as something I was going to do no matter w- whether I could make money or not. So, yeah, it, it, it sounds so similar. Like the stuff I used to love to do when I was in high school, I got into the high school newspaper and I, I stuck to mostly do it covering the sports articles for the high school paper. And then I worked for the college paper when I went to the university of Illinois. And that was kind of my trajectory. Like I loved writing and I, I wanted to do this and, and then education caught me and I ended up going that direction. But so I was going to ask you about switching from journalistic nonfiction writing to fiction. That was something I always loved fiction writing, 
but I also yeah. found the newspaper writing and, and magazine style writing to be a little bit easier. It was always more of a struggle for the fiction writing. So how did you, how was it to make that leap from nonfiction to fiction? Well, I think it's, again, it's kind of an evolution because you, you learn if you, if you're dedicated to finishing a book and I'm, I've got a kind of perfectionist. So I wanted it to read well and be accessible to audiences, whether they like 90s music or not. So the, the, the part that was relatively easy so in sports, I mean, I suppose unless you're doing game recaps, in sports you tend to do a lot of interviews where you get quotes. So, I mean, what it becomes a lot of times is unless you're just covering Ohio State and you're covering Ohio State games and sort of the, or you're covering baseball and you're looking at like the trades and the prospects, you tend to do a lot of interviews and quotes or quotes that become maybe if you're good enough or you focus on you get to do interviews, even like 10 minute interviews with people. So it becomes this thing for me, it became the sort of, you know, part-time job in doing character studies where I've gotten to, so now like the last two years, three years for Forbes, I have publicists coming to me. I get to interview some really great, not because I'm special, but because I built relationships. I've got to interview Lindsey Vaughn. I got to talk to Tom Brady for eight minutes back in January, which was a great little interview. And, you know, I got to talk to Shaquille O'Neal and then also like Paralympians, like Melissa Stockwell, who lost a leg in Iraq and, you know, fighting for our country. And David Brown, who's a blind sprinter which I can, I can explain that to you but basically like talking to him last summer before the paralympics like i'm talking to this guy who, and it wasn't it wasn't so what's it like to be a blind runner it's like so tell me about the paralympics and he's like yeah i'm just out there to execute i'm gonna dominate you know he's like cocky like any athlete you would hope and expect would be so i've gotten to do these character studies and i think that kind of helped me when i was developing my character i knew i could talk about the sort of the basis for the story but basically somewhere along the way i thought someone like me who's in my late 40s now 50 wouldn't it be cool if we go back to the, the 90s for a weekend or longer and, and what would we do? What shows would we see? What would we do? Then the other side of it is what what would I do to, I don't know, fix my life or what mistakes would I try to not make? But in, you got to craft characters. So my, she wasn't me. Darby's not me necessarily, but I wanted to, obviously I crafted a character that you sort of hitch a ride with and follow her to f follow follow her journey. And then she's got quirky friends and, and the whole like, Spending time interviewing athletes and asking questions that the answers I get are not what I predicted, or I ask an open-ended question about X and I get Y, uh, that probably helped me sort of think about what people would say and and, and sort of think, if, if Darby hates the holidays, why is it? Is it because her strained relationship with her parents? Is it because something happened? Is it just because she got, she got screwed on Christmas presents because her birthday is the same month as Christmas, or who knows? There's some of that. And then also I took a lot of improv classes. I get to, I, I'm with a group called the disappointments. We, we've pretty much performed up to the pandemic at second city as a, a guest group. And it's basically me and a bunch of millennials and I'm the producer. When you learn improv, you take improv classes. The first like year of it is like killing bad habits. So you're not standing on stage with another scene partner going, well, so what are we doing? What are we talking about? Like you kill the bad habits and you learn how to speak naturally as much as you can, at least if you stick with it. So those two things, kind of the character study and then sort of not making the mistakes of, you know, dabbling in dialogue that's not realistic. Like just kind of keeping the conversation like we are now, I hope. Those two things helped a lot. And then the rest of it is you make discoveries and you have a plot and you want to make the plot work. And then you, know, you talk to editors and, and, and literary agents who are like, well, you got this thing going on. That seems cool. You need to turn up, turn that up. Or this doesn't seem reconciled. How do you, how do you, how do you go back and edit and think about how you're going to, how are you going to fix that? So 
It was an evolution. I mean, the first year and a half, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I knew what the plot was. I knew what the themes were. I wanted to work in like music and Chicago and drinking culture and going to shows and concerts and all these things that I finally found a way to kind of drop in there without being it without it being overbearing. So all those things, you just kind of if you stick with it, you learn you learn your way to do it. Then luckily I've had some means to hire an editor to kind of guide me here and there. And then five years down the road, I ended up with a a product I was pretty happy with, with a, a great cover on it too. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned a second ago about kind of the dialogue and that was something that in reading the book, I'm like, it feels like I'm back talking with a group of friends about our, our favorite movie, our favorite album, you know, and you mentioned kind of wanting that to be something that flowed naturally. And that was something we've had people, folks that have listened to our podcast for a while have said, like, I feel like when I'm jogging or I'm in my car, I feel like I'm having a conversation with you guys, even though I've never met you at all. And that was kind of like in your book, as I'm reading the the, the book and, and, and interacting with these characters, I'm like, this takes me back to when I was in high school in the 90s and we're sitting around talking movies, talking music, talking sports, the, the bulls at the time. You know, yeah. so it was, the dialogue was, was so natural and, and it really kind of took you back to hanging out with your friends. Well, good, I hope so. Yeah. And the cover too. You mentioned the cover, and I can. The folks listening can't see it, but I can see it right behind you. We'll, we can uh, we can tweet out a photo of it so they can see it. But uh, yeah, it's an awesome cover. Yeah, well, yeah, so I, I published it through Atmosphere Press, which is an independent uh, publisher in Austin, Texas. And I don't know how you know like Penguin and Scribner do it, but I mean, when you're working with a little a publishing house, you go you go through the editing and all that stuff. And then uh, with them, they kind of they assign me a graphic designer or an artist, I'm not sure what his title was, but he said, he was based in Brazil, he was like a freelancer who's based in Brazil. He said like, I think he said, his bio is, it says, my name's Ronaldo, I'm from Brazil, but I don't know how to play soccer, so don't ask me about it. But I think it seemed like if he didn't read the book, he went through it pretty deeply and he came up with three covers and one was this one with the the L train on it, or like a train that looks pretty damn close to an L train. It's a little bit comic booky, and it's, I think, uh, the bright red, like fire truck red cover with the lightning bolts. So anybody listening, go to 90days90s.com. If you look it up on Amazon, it's this, you know, I like highway highway length colors. And when you go into a bookstore, a lot of them are, yeah, a lot of like murder mysteries, they're like black or white or gray or the stereotypical like romance book has shirtless Fabio on the top of a horse with rainbows shooting out of his, his, his butt or whatever. This one really, I felt like stood out and kind of did justice to the the theme, if not the plot, I didn't have to explain it. There's a train involved because you can see it right there. The time travel mechanism is a train. And then also, you know, when it came up with 98, I, I kind of actually Kevin Smoker was sort of the one that when this was called something else, he said, I like 90s and the 90s. That could be a better, that could be a good title. And eventually I kind of relented to that and thought, okay, he knows what he's talking about because he's written a few books. Um, and then I just kind of added on the, on the end of the kind of like a subtitle, a rock and roll time travel story so people would know about it. it was about time travel and rock and roll if if they didn't read the synopsis just to kind of throw it out hit, hit people in the face with everything at once it's kind of the way i like to do it i guess yeah where did you land on so for your we we talk movies so we talk a lot about like gremlins and and movies that have rules and and time travel especially sci-fi time travel it's always got to have some kind of rules to it and and some yeah. nerds get real sticky about their time travel rules did you what what influenced you like i was always a big fan of like quantum leap and some of that stuff and back to the future what kind of influenced you when you were coming up with how am i going to how am i going to fence this in so it makes sense but we we can we got some rules we can follow too 
Well, to, to me, the, the time travel was always meant to be incidental so that the stronger themes are music, the 90s, you know, personal growth and sort of going back to your nostalgia, go back to your past. I remember when I was first querying this, so it's about 2019, I was at, I think I went to both that, that year, I went to both the San Francisco Writers Conference in February in San Francisco, and then the LA Writers Conference out in kind of like the outskirts of LA. And I kept getting like, this is great, I like this, send me a copy, but... It's, it's time travel light. Or if I had a, a literary agent who was like really into, to, or sorry, really into sci-fi, it was like sci-fi light. This is a little bit too sci-fi light for me. If it was more sci-fi, I'd take it. And so I just thought about that. I also at San Francisco, I went out to dinner with some other writers, some of whom who had a couple of books, some of whom were just trying to take that idea that they've had for 10 years. And we're all talking about our books and stuff. And somebody asked me to describe my story. I do. And I was another guy from Chicago. I don't remember his name, but he's like, oh, it's like that Woody Allen movie where the car pulls up and they go back to the 1920s. Right. I'm like, I hadn't seen that Midnight in Paris for a couple of years. And yeah. I mean, maybe probably in the back of my head, I tried to avoid time travel movies while I was writing this. But I thought, yeah, because that's that's like a good example of, of there is some time travel. You don't really care too much about how it happens, but obviously there's there's a rule and you stick by it. And then you kind of... You just, you don't really overanalyze it too much. So for the rules, I just decided that there was a couple things you know, that I had to kind of nail down that this time travel train. So staple to this, I remember the nineties is when we, so you were in high school. I was in, I was out of college, newly out of college, working at a company. And I remember when we went from like the small company I worked for having one AOL address to like everybody in the place gets their own email. And then within about a month, you start getting like all these urban legends and all this stuff that comes trivia, Nigerian princes, pass this email on, it's a Microsoft usage test. And oh, my cousin just got a $10,000 check from Bill Gates. Like all that nonsense came up as soon as everyone was digitally connected. So the urban legends piece of it kind of, I, I utilize that one to sort of have Darby. Yeah, maybe she's heard about this train called the gray line that goes in the past. She never really paid attention to stuff like that. As it turns out, without too much of a spoiler, they're a gray line stop under her record store. And then just that it allows you to sort of suspend disbelief in that you're in this land that's like things are a little murky and hokey and, and urban legends exist. And the way that this train, I, I, I have a whole chapter where I lay, and you probably read it, where I lay out all the rules. She kind of discovers the rules when she discovers the train line. And she's like, what the hell, man? Like. What's going on here? This thing is real. I guess I, I bet I guess I guess I better jump on the internet and research this thing. I felt like when I watched the movie yesterday, the movie about the where the, where the guy goes and the Beatles never existed. Yeah. There's a scene where he goes to the internet to look up the Beatles, like because nobody's heard of the Beatles anymore. And yeah, that, he, that he, kind starts, of he starts trying to like I, Google "Let It Be" and like all the yeah. yeah. And he <laughs> yeah. Google's the Beatles, and the only thing that comes up with Wikipedia and like a picture of a bug. So. I felt like that was a natural thing that we would do nowadays if we discovered that the Eiffel, Eiffel Tower Eiffel Tower disappeared tomorrow and nobody remembered it. You'd probably go to the internet and be like, well, it, it's got to be there. Like, I'm going to check the internet. It's going to be there. So she finds out the rules through her internet searches, which are pretty brief. I don't spend more than about five or six pages on that. And then she, you know, put one of the overarching themes is nostalgia. She's a 50-year-old person or 49 or so. She owns a record store with a bunch of, you know, one's kind of like, you know, ironically cool, uncool nerd record store worker and another guy's a, a black metal head. And then there's Spacey, who's kind of like the one who really stokes her nostalgia, who's kind of like, imagine Billie Eilish working in a record store. Like she knows everything. She knows the music. She's got the street cred. And she starts pushing Darby's buttons and Darby just decides, all right, well, I got this record, I got this record store and I've got a train stop to go back in the past below my record store. I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to go take a trip. 
and I'm going to follow the rules. And then she actually, she goes, she, she ends up leaving to go back to the past on the exact day that she left Chicago in 1996 to like to piss off and start a new life in New York. So the rule that exists there is that she comes back the same day. It just so happens I craft that way. So nobody, nobody knows that she left except that her hair's a little different. They thought she got her hair cut. And uh, the rule I had to make was that you can only exist in one, one place in time. So if you're, you're not going to see another you running around taking classes under your name in New York, if you happen to do that in the future, it's just you, you, the one, one continuum one time for you. I made that rule and I stuck to it. And I suppose if I read a sequel, then I'll have to revisit that. But it, it pretty much worked out that way to set some rules and stick to them and really, really go towards the story versus dissecting the time travel. Yeah. I, I love the, I love the supporting characters you had. I, I got real high fidelity empire records vibes from the, the quirky characters. Are they, and you don't have to tell me who they are. Are they based yeah. off of people or did you take little snippets from celebrities you've interviewed or. I, I think so. Some of the characters are I've taken, they're sort of maybe exaggerated versions of, of people that I know where like Darby's best friend, because she kind of lost touch with her, her best friend, Alex Spiro, when she moved away to New York. When she goes back to 1996, like, he doesn't even know that she's gone, been gone because she's back in the same place in time. To her, it's like she hasn't seen her best friend in 25 years. That's kind of like based off a friend of mine. My best friend, Doug Milam, is a, is a writer. He used to live here, and he's he lives up in the Pacific Northwest now. He's kind of more of a poet, short story writer, and he's working up on a book on soccer right now called The, uh, the Starting Eleven. But, like, when he, I knew him my whole life almost now, but when he was in grad school here, he was typically like grad school student, kind of like pseudo-socialist, penny pension. We go out for beers and like drink beers all night and everybody, this is 1996, we'd have to like pony up our six or $7 for beer and he'd have like a dollar. So I kind of took some of those things and just exaggerated them. And we have a funny friend who's kind of like the other friend they went to Europe with named Rye Guy as the character, which is kind of an asshole, but like the friend that I took notes from He's not quite that bad. I just kind of took a, the way he jokes with people and like turned it up a thousand percent. So that's, and I think that works for, for characters. If you've got somebody who is like, think about Stifler in American Pie. He's the rich kid with the super hot mom who's just has no self-awareness and he's extremely good looking and extremely obnoxious. And then also he's kind of stupid when he does stupid things. He does embarrassing, stupid things to completely humiliate himself and then he's not even self-aware enough to know that he's humiliating himself so all the parts of his personality are turned up a thousand percent and you don't have to do that with every character but i think it, it helps when you're doing kind of a comedy based thing where you want people to lighten up and laugh at at the jerk from high school that you knew the jock or at the you know the the idiot of the poetry slam who's just a little too pedantic you, you, you turn up those attributes and that helps a bit so yeah do any of them, because one of the, like you said, the, the big, one of the big themes is the music of the 90s. Do any yeah. of the characters, is it spread throughout the characters? Or do, is there any one character that matches your musical tastes the closest? Is, uh, I think Darby, is it Darby probably, is it, yeah. Uh, Darby, yeah, the main character, probably does, although she's maybe, she's a woman, so she's got a little bit more interest in, like, Anya Franco, and there's a artist here who's up and coming named girl named Nino. If you haven't heard her, check her out. She's kind of like a little, little jazzy, little hip hoppy. Whereas I'm personally a little bit more kind of eighties alternative and nineties indie rock. And we all have our preferences, but you know, I guess what Darby and I share is we, we both think that 1990s Phil Collins doing the, the, the movie score touchy feely weepy song 
that goes number one is garbage and we're gonna let people know that we think Phil Collins sucks. Yeah. And like I like 80s Genesis, but I don't want to hear like the Lion King part two theme song. Right. And you know, it's there, there's some of that, but I kind of try to let it be with 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 people. I, there's there's only a couple artists that I kind of let the narrator knock or let the main characters knock by and large. It's I mentioned there's probably like 250 different musical artists that I've mentioned or name drop or make reference to in conversation or just the musical part of this. So I want to have people kind of, you know, this just, just to be a grunge book or a hip hop book or, a, you know, yeah, I think I, there's some flavors of what I like in there, but the flip side is so Darby, one of the, the subplots is that she, she kind of goes back to, to reestablish ties with a girlfriend that she kind of screwed up with. It doesn't go well. And then she meets this other pretty redhead named Rachel at Lounge Axe, the legendary club in, on the North side. And and Rachel is, I kind of pictured in my mind, like what's her name? The red-haired actress, Jessica, or John Chastain. What? Chastain. Yeah, Jessica Chastain. So picture her in like a leather jacket and she's really into hair metal in the, in the nineties. So it kind of challenges Darby's music snobbishness a little bit, which is another thing I want to play with. So there's that. So there's all kinds of people with all kinds of tastes and they sort of coexist and talk about music and joke about it, but it's not the only thing that they do. However, I think it makes music important if you want to, I, 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 so the last thing I'll say about this is like on the weekend, sometimes I will, I have a little booth at an arts, uh, there's like a little art, like a farmer's market for artists. And I think I'm the only author there selling a book. And the people who come up and buy the book are the people who would naturally come up and buy the book. There, Lincoln Square is a lot of 40 somethings. Some have kids, some don't. They love music. They remember Loud Jacks. 20 bucks for a book is not, when I sell it there, it's, it's like not, it's not even an issue. And if there's a book about the 90s music, they're going to buy it. So it's like, oh, yeah, I'll, yeah I'm going to get one of these. It's not even a question. So maybe I wrote for that crowd, but I feel like I also serviced the themes enough so that anybody, I hope, anybody who likes pop culture of any type in the 20th century can can also enjoy it too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's you talking about the characters that Darby, as she's listing off her musical tastes, and, and I'm sitting there like jotting down the names of all the bands that because they're, they're they're not bands that I interacted with in the 90s, huh. and so I'm like, okay, well, let me write that one down. I gotta go check it out. I get, all right, I'm apparently building my new Spotify playlist to go check all this stuff out, and the funny thing is, as I'm reading the book, and I've already said we're gonna kind of lightly spoil a few things here and there, I won't mm-hmm. give the context of the situation, but there was a moment in the book, because Rachel, as Rachel's listing off hers, she's like, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, I'm like, Rachel's my girl. Rachel yeah. is my girl here. Like that's my motorhead. <laughs> right, right. That's yeah, that's my stuff. So then I think at one point Darby, there's a moment where Darby turns to Rachel. It's the end of one of the chapters, and she goes, "You know what? I always hated your musical taste." I'm like, "Oh, Darby, don't don't do that. Don't do that to me, girl." <laughs> yeah, well, in relationships, people sometimes have fights and say things yeah. they don't mean. But I yeah. mean, I don't know. I, I would think that Darby, yeah, she wouldn't like the fact that she's not into to sticks or Bon Jovi. Right. She's definitely not going to listen to like like extreme or I don't know, like enough's enough. Like there are some pretty terrible derivative oh, yeah. late metal bands, you know, that aren't Def Leppard that aren't like, I love the cult. So Darby would probably like yeah. the cult and motorhead and, uh, but you know, wouldn't stand for the other stuff. Or just like when it comes down to it, you know, if you force, I, I love dub reggae and I love second wave ska, 
Mm-hmm. But there's there's some of UB40 stuff I want to listen to a lot. And But if you're going to play Red Red Wine 30 times in the car, I'm going to punch you in the face. Or I'm going <laughs> to yep. I'm gonna say, actually, let me out here. I'll walk the rest of the way because I'm not a violent person. Yep. But yeah, so we all have things that like, God, I hate this song. I, I can't believe I'm hearing the song again. You know, there's that too. And, you know, I, I don't know. That's just part of life, I think. Same with movies too, though. Yeah. yeah. I hate I hate Roadhouse. Okay. I know people are like, oh my God, how you can how can you hate Roadhouse? And I, I'm not gonna go on the reasons why, but now that they're gonna remake it, I'm like, really? Like the first one wasn't seedy enough. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I real brief, real brief story. I had, and I've already apologized to the guy multiple times. There was a friend of a friend of mine, we were driving together to a education conference, and it was February, there was a blizzard, we're stuck in traffic. I'm like both hands glued to the wheel, just focused on the road ahead. And I guess he was being polite enough, or I don't know, dumb enough, that he didn't ask me to change the music that I had planned. And I had set a playlist, and I wasn't, I was so focused on the road, I wasn't paying attention to the fact that it was on a repeat loop, and it was all Nora Jones. And so we were stuck in traffic for like two hours with Nora Jones playing nonstop. And once we got out of the car, he's like, if you ever do that to me again, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. I said, look, I I was so focused. I wasn't even paying. (laughs) I apologize, but. (laughs) Yeah. But there's some of those artists, like the first time I heard Nora Nora Jones, I brought it home to my wife. I'm like, you're going to like this. So it's like with Nora Jones and Coldplay and the Dave Matthews band, I think the People will be like, well, why don't you really like, why don't you like Coldplay that much? I'm like, because well, I can turn on the radio now and listen to it. Right. You know, I, I can't turn on the radio right now. Maybe I could turn Q101 Q1, on if Lauren O'Neill is on right now, and I'm going to hear Local H at least once a day. But I, I'm not going to hear, I don't know, The English Beat or Real Big Fish or, I don't know, Susie and the Banshees necessarily. or well, there's, even some, like, there's something fun to be said. I mean, there's something to be said for going and having to find it. Yeah, that too, yeah. So I think I think Coldplay is actually really talented, but I don't I don't want to hear the music because I can hear it all the time, and all I'm going to do is open my window, I suppose, and someone's going to drive by playing, yeah. playing clocks or one of them. That's just the way it is. And I think maybe I'm glad that those artists, if they are, you know, authentic, and I think most of them are, whether we like their music or not, that they've gotten paid and they'd be able to make a living doing what they want to do. But at the same time, you figure like the the industry has maybe done them a, a disservice by playing their music all the time. Now, Smash Mouth probably made the decision that they wanted to be on the on the outside of a Skittles bag and a, a, a Slurpee cup, and they got paid to do that. Sure. And that's just a little bit too much. That's a little sellout for me. So when they're on the, the singers on whatever, Celebrity, Sob Story, whatever the, whatever the show is, that's a little bit too much. But, you know, Coldplay, eh, yeah, they're overplayed, but I think they're trying to do, they're trying to do right by their music, and I'll leave it at that. I just don't need to hear them nonstop, you know? Right. So I'm curious about this because as I'm going through and I'm reading it, I and I, I Google searched as many of them as I could. Some of you recognized, some I needed to Google search. Tell me a little yeah. bit about the chapter titles. So is there any yeah. any any little hidden messages in there, or just you wanted to do fun fun lyrics from songs? Yeah. So I, I uh, this is kind of an idea I had early on the sort of uh, the naming convention to use actually someone else's words. I was on a podcast a, a, a couple of days ago, and they're like, "You got a naming convention for your chapters?" I'm like, "Thank you. I don't, didn't know what to call that." But yeah. Pretty much all the chapters are named for a seminal or important song or album from the '90s. The only wild card is that there's a fictional band called Dreaded Letters that I made up. It's you, you hear about them in the first chapter. So any of the chapters that actually aren't like like there's Sparkle and Fade, which is an album by Everclear. There's Debut, which is an album by 
Bjork, which actually talks about dreaded letters for a show. And what's another one? There's like, too, not too soon is one of my favorite songs by Throwing Muses. It's a chapter where somebody shows up where, just right when they should, when Darby needs a friend to kind of check in on her now that she's stuck back in time. They're all, they're all songs that, when I was writing the chapter, I'm kind of thinking about that theme in the background. Like, like I, I, I kind of want to pick a song. I'm not going to force it for this chapter. But there's a couple times where just like, bam, like a chapter called Uncle Anesthesia, which is a kind of a little known album by the Screaming Trees. It's actually co-produced by Chris Cornell. It was the album that came out in 91 before Screaming Trees got famous with their single from the single soundtrack called I Nearly Lost You. And I always loved that album. I was a college DJ my freshman year. I, I used to play uh, a couple songs from a one, I think their single on that album that came out, at least in the college circuit, was called Oceans of Confusion. Great album. And uh, there's a scene where, so Darby, the way that she gets a record store is she she lives this life in New York. Her career is falling apart. Right when her career is falling apart and her fiance ditches her and breaks up with her, her, her favorite uncle, who owns a record store in Chicago, dies. And so he wills her the record store. She's feeling bad enough that she didn't keep in touch with her uncle. That's one thing. So, of course, when she goes back in time, she's kind of apprehensive about dropping in to see her uncle because she feels bad about, and maybe this is just some way some people would be. She kind of didn't talk to her uncle, and then he died. She felt bad about that. So eventually, she does kind of get the courage to go back and see her uncle, Uncle Martin, when he owned the record store. And at the same time, she had just broken up with Rachel or something happened to Rye there. And just the, the title of that album just popped in my head, Uncle Anesthesia. I'm like, there's, she's kind of feeling bad and feeling pain about breaking up with her girl. And then she's visiting her uncle. So I, I like, I got to use the title of that album. And it's just kind of worked out that way. So there's a few where it's, it's obvious. And I didn't want to use ones that were just sort of like, I don't want to use like blood sugar, sex magic is one of the, because there's some that are, I think just would be a little too obvious, but you know, for someone who is enthusiastic about either 90s music or like the kind of person I think you and I are, where we would go check out something that sounds interesting. Someone mentions a band that we kind of heard of that we don't know to. We'll go to Spotify or go to the record store and look them up. That's sort of the the impetus there that, you know, there is a music theme. Yeah, I also kind of think like if, if, it, if it, someone ever does a Wikipedia article on my book, I'd, I'd like them to kind of talk about that that's kind of the thing that wikipedia nerds would explain in a right. wikipedia article but that was fun to do and i felt like it gave it a sort of a unifying quality of that everything about this the whole book the book isn't just about music but everything about it is is involved in music and that was just sort of something i wanted to play with and it worked yeah yeah. Yeah. It, it really made me think of, I always think that I get some of my musical taste from my dad. My dad always had pretty eclectic taste. He would buy totally random stuff. He, when we lived in England for a few years, we'd go to the Tower Records, the the massive Tower Records in downtown yeah. London, and he would just randomly, he'd look through the, the through the stacks and just randomly grab five or six CDs. You know, he's like, oh, this looks cool. Let me give that a try. And some of it was like, Barcelona, the, the Barcelona tribe of soulsters, and it was Billy Joel's new album, and it was ZZ Top, and it was all this grow and growing up in Texas too, and so every time I'd go down to to Austin, one of my favorite music stores is Waterloo Music Store down there, and I make it a habit in honor of my dad who passed away a few years ago. I go down there and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna find some stuff that does not fit with my usual musical tastes, and I'm just gonna try some stuff out, and that is the most fun to me is when you just, when you discover something, cause I might buy some of them and be like, oh, there's a song or two that's on here. That's good. But then I'll find something. I'm like, Nope, this is the new rotation in the car for a while. Yeah. I think that we had to do that in the eighties and nineties. You had to take yeah. chances. I, mean, I remember I was telling my, my son this a couple of days ago that I remember I was in New Orleans in for my spring break in 1991 
freshman college, and I went to a record store. I don't I feel like it's like, like a chain that doesn't exist anymore, like Coconuts or something. It, had, it was brand new. You could put on the earphones, listen to it. And I remember watching like a clip from the the first Pearl Jam single, which was Alive. Yeah. And I see, kind of see, it's on a small screen. I see Eddie, Eddie Vedder wearing uh, flannel kind of jumping into a crowd. And I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. Like, I don't know who this Pearl Jam band is, but you know, like six months later, they're one of the biggest bands in the world. But before that, I'd have to go to a record store and I would just be like, all right, the Pogues, I think someone conned me into to believing I needed to pick up an album by Rusted Root, which I, I kind of, I'm like, like Coldplay on them now. Like, I, I just can't listen to that anymore. Something by like Bad Brains. I feel like I picked up like a Joan Osborne disc. And then like in the $1 bin, I got a disc by The Millions because I knew one song by them. And The Millions kind of sound like Rush. They're from... They're from Nebraska. I don't think they ever did anything. Like I don't know if they ever even came to Chicago, but like I know their sound. And you know, for the forty bucks, that was like my grocery money and the one dollar for the one dollar disc by millions. Like I had enough music to listen nonstop for you know like a good week solid. And like you're saying, you pick up what you like, and you kind of feel bad that you bought an album for sixteen ninety nine or whatever it was that had two songs that you like, but. I guess because of Spotify, and I do pay for my Spotify subscription. Like we don't have to do that as much anymore. And I still go out and buy CDs. And especially when I'm at shows, I'll buy like, I'm going to see L7 and Mama this fall. I'm going to buy, I already got some other CDs, but I'm going to buy one or I'll buy a t-shirt, even though I have one. That's yeah. that's what you got to do to keep your keep your favorite bands in business, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got to ask you for, and and for anybody who hasn't read the book, I'm, I'm going to give maybe a major spoiler here for a second. Or maybe I can just ask it this way. Feel free to spoil as much as you want to. Yeah. Uh, was there ever a different ending to the book? In all your drafts that you did, did you ever end it differently? I don't think so because uh, I did have the idea that the beginning and the end begin in the present. And I didn't want to get too much into, well, what if something changes in the time travel continuum and then you like majorly mess up your life? I kind of wanted, it was sort of the opposite. So I think the way that we we look at life uh, we look at stories like like Back to the Future and and I don't know, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is that they go to do try to do something right and they almost screw up their existence and they almost like either make themselves not exist or something happens. And I want wanted Darby to kind of be in the in the past and not really because of my rules, she wasn't affected by time as much. However, what she she finds is that so her her life in the present in the beginning of the book is all about try to make things better, trying to the, sort of this, this thing that we have, I think maybe generation X is that we're very self-aware about authenticity. We very much were told a million times that we're, we're going to be the first generation that doesn't make as much money as our parents and life is going to be worse, worse for us. I don't know if that's true. So we always kind of thought that, well, whether I'm rich or poor, I, I want to use this one life to kind of do what I think I should be doing. So maybe some of us overdid it in that we were constantly to use the, uh, the Indigo Girls song, we're always trying to get closer to fine. What she finds is that if she kind of stopped trying to do everything, you know, trying to make the grass, if she stopped with her grass is greener mentality for a minute and enjoyed life, she realized that things wouldn't work out the way they were supposed to. So I don't know, maybe that's a bad lesson. You go back in time and then after you've kind of screwed up your life, you go back in time and just roll with it, then things work out. But I wanted it to be about, in part, Darby actually, the first, the, so the maybe to kind of answer some of your question is, when I first started, Darby was just like a male protagonist. And I decided to change it. I had an epiphany walking around with my dog one night late, I think the fall of 2020. And I kind of decided or had this like, eureka moment that after 
a four years of Trump and Me Too and George Floyd and all this other stuff that was happening that maybe the last thing that people want to read and the last thing that publishers and agents are looking for is a story about a middle-aged white guy who wants to go back to the past. Maybe that's not where I need to go. And I thought about the fact that you can look at my articles on Forbes. I mean, half of the athletes I write about are women. So it kind of comes natural to me to at least to sort of character study women and and to understand them as I treat all the athletes like athletes. I don't talk about Jenny Finch being a, a, a woman athlete. She's an athlete to me. She's a professional athlete. So I took that approach. Darby's kind of the same character, still a music lover, still has commitment issues and things. So it was actually kind of that, that middle part that changed, not the beginning of the end. And sort of her rooting out her grass is greener mentality about everything and just kind of chilling the hell out. You know, even trying to fix some things that are not going well, that she finds out that, you know, that life ends up sort of the way it's supposed to be. And it's, it's better, at least in her case, by not trying to force things that shouldn't be forced. Yeah. So that's the long answer. So, yeah, yeah it, wasn't, it wasn't the end that changed. It was the, the middle parts and the middle themes. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, and 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 it was such it just a, a fun ride with the character. You know, it just kind of felt like you were yeah. along for the ride with a friend the whole time. So I'm going to ask you, so speaking of being along for the ride, there yeah. are a lot of moments in the book, you know, especially when they when they head over to Europe for a while, but all throughout Chicago, there's a lot of drinking going on in the book. And <laughs> one of my questions for you is going to be, because my answer to this, to this day, makes my sister really angry. What did you do the first time you took a shot of Malort? Well, it's funny that that I'm talking to somebody who runs a a movie podcast because one of my all, so to add some context here, one of my all-time favorite lines from a movie is from Ghostbusters where I think they cross the streams and they melt down the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and there's some big mess. And and Harold Ramis says, I feel like the floor of a taxi cab. (laughs) I don't know why I think that that just, and I mean, the other one, the other great line is when he gets asked about his hobbies while I collect spores, molds, and funguses. Like all his lines are just like, matter of fact and insanely weird but so i think of like yeah like the first time i, I took a shot of the lord it was like okay we're gonna do this dude like I, i'd never had it before it was probably almost it was like 70 years ago and it just tasted like the floor of a cap, taxi cab to me like i what i would imagine that would taste like or like licking the bottom of my shoe and i know there's people and i wanted to deal with this in my book there's a scene where they're back in lounge jacks after darby goes back in time and it's more shot time and everybody has to do it and Darby's like, okay, well, I'm just here to have fun. I'm going to try it on for size again. And everybody, except for the people who like pretend they like it, which I don't think anybody likes the way it tastes. They all they always pretend, oh yeah, I like it a lot. It's really good. I, I don't mind the taste at all. Like it's, I think it's designed to be a repulsive liquor, and that's part of the charm. And whoever whoever bought and reshook up the brand has done a great job with it. Mm-hmm. As it's now a Chicago institution, but yeah, I, I didn't like it. I, I I probably tasted worse things, but. I was happy that it was over, and I don't have a particularly great sense of smell, so I don't have a particularly great sense of taste, so I probably That didn't probably get... helped. Yeah, that probably helped me survive yeah. through it, but yeah, I'm not volunteering to, to uh, you know, do a Malort tasting anytime soon. I don't know, maybe I'll have, yeah. a, maybe I'll have like a, an event where I'll do like a book reading, we'll have a Malort tasting just to go. see who shows up. That, that matches up nicely. Yeah, my sister took me, actually, I was I got invited with a group of educators to do a panel discussion at the Tribune many years ago, and uh, we were not too far away from where my sister lived downtown, and she's like, look, you, you love the 80s, you love video games, I got to take you to this place called Headquarters, and I'm going to take you there, and I'm also going to get you a shot. And I said, well, a shot of what? And we'd lived in Chicago for, we'd lived in this area for a while, I 
up to that point had never had Malort. I knew of it, had heard of it, had heard legends about how bad it's supposed to be. And yeah. so, but she really, really wanted to see my reaction to this because I guess she had gone with some coworkers and it, they had all done shots and took t- they took videos of their Malort faces. And so she gave me the shot. And I downed the shot, and my facial expression didn't even change. I didn't pretend I liked it, but I was like, huh. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And she's just like, I was expecting more of a reaction from you. And I said, no, it's, it's, it's bad, but, you know, I'm not going to make a face or anything. She's like, what in the world have you been drinking throughout your life that it's not that bad? <laughs> and I said, eh, it's, just, I drink it's not whiskey great. No more. Like, I, I got into Irish whiskey a while ago, and, like, I had a little bit last night because I wanted to watch the news and all the stuff that was going on with Trump's house getting raided and stuff. So I was like, right. I'm going to watch I've been avoiding the news for, like, a long time. It's like, well, I'm going to watch the news, and my wife grabs some wine. So I'm like, I'm going to get a little bit more Irish whiskey. I think I wonder if like I'm more conditioned to deal with Malort now that I have a bottle of whiskey at home, which I'm not like, I'm not a boozer. I'm not, I don't have a drinking problem, but right. every once in a while I'll break it out every like week or two, week and a half, maybe two, three weeks at a time before I, and I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to be prepared to do a shot of Malort any more than when I was 10 years old. I think it's going to be probably just as yeah. shocking. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've kind of established, and I think my son asked me this. I, I took him on a trip to Indianapolis for my son's about the same age as your son, and yeah. I took him on a, a trip to Indianapolis partly because our one of our favorite taco places in Austin, Texas, built one up in Indianapolis. So he wanted to drive the three and a half hours just to get tacos. They're called a Torchies Tacos. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a like a fast food taco place, but it's the the combinations they've got are so good. And so he wants to go three and a half hours, four hours to get tacos. I said, well, let's visit some colleges while we're there. And that'll be our excuse for going. So we did that. We went to the, our our first ever NASCAR race at the motor speedway there. And Mm -hmm. so we were, (laughs) we were actually out one night and we went to this restaurant and I tried to order, I've got a couple of drinks that I usually order when I go out somewhere. And my son even said, he's like, do you just order like old man drinks that nobody knows how to make? Because usually the bartenders, when I try to order like a rusty nail or something like that, the bartenders are like, I, I don't even know what that is. That is an old man drink. Yeah, I know. Anyway. <laughs> so that's that's yeah. usually my that's usually my old man thing that I do. I was what was the character Rod in the book? I think yeah. at one of the points he was everybody else was doing shots and he was drinking a Glenlivet. Yeah, I like Rod. Maybe drink wise, Rod may be a little bit more my speed with the scotch. Well, I actually did have a roommate who was a, was a short guy who was, did go to film school, and he's a bit of a, so again an exaggeration of my roommate Rob yeah. from the nineties. And uh, yeah, Rod is all about like he loves James Bond. He's got like he smokes cigars a little bit, but it's more about like the shiny things that people who smoke cigars have. Like I don't know, like metal cigarette holders and. I don't know, the things that clip the end off a guitar, of the cigar, whatever that's called, yeah. uh, Montblanc pens, they always had like nice suits. And I kind of took that character and turned it up. And yeah, I think one time my roommate dated a, a woman who was like significantly taller. So like, then I made all of them, all the, all the women that he dates, you know, you know, supermodels basically, even for Chicago. And yeah. that was fun. So then I had, I do have some friends who are like, I don't, I could care less about scotch, but I mean, I think it's fine. And I, I, I did, did have a friend who bought me a bottle of Glenlivet for my, I think my 30th birthday. It was a while ago yeah. and it took forever to get through it. Cause I don't really like it that much, but it seemed like it was a classy, like eh, something that a scotch, a scotch lover. If you're not at the Duke of Perth or some specialty Scottish yeah. or scotch bar that they're probably going to Glenlivet 15. And that's what they're going to get to kind of show off that they, have that 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 taste and that panache. Yeah, I, I'd like to say that my favorite, one of my favorite scotches is Lagavulin because I'm because I know my scotches so well. It's actually yeah. just from Ron Swanson. 
on the Parks and Rec. <laughs> yeah. That's the only reason I went with that one. And it didn't taste too bad. Okay. Yeah, yeah I've had Lafroy a couple times. It tastes like peat moss, I think. So yeah. yeah, some of those you get you get a little too peaty on on some of those. I'm like, ah, I can't I can't do that one quite as much. Yeah. So you you had at one point in the book you get into a little bit of an argument and and this is where you know us being a movie podcast I, I immediately was like oh this is this is so great this is kind of the discussions like we have all the time one of the characters says something along the lines of well you know what the '90s does better than any other decade and yeah. and they swing into movie soundtracks so yeah. so I was going to ask you what is your favorite movie soundtrack of the '90s. Well, I got a couple because, I mean, it's – I don't mean to give you an MBA, it depends answer. But, yeah. I mean, I think probably the one that's like the solid centerpiece of work would be the single soundtrack because it does stick to some themes. And I don't know, maybe in the back of my head that's what I tried to do with the book and just to kind of think of it now. Like all, the, all my chapters are named after some sort of album or song from the 90s. Singles, most of it is Seattle music. I remember when it came out, people were like – People, before they knew any better, were like, oh, yeah, all the bands are from Seattle. And I'm like, well, Smashing Pumpkins is not from Seattle, it's from Chicago. But, I mean, most of them, yeah, it's like Allison Chains, Pearl Jam's on there, Soundgarden. Yeah, is Heart from Seattle? I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if they're originally from from Pacific, or, or, but they've got some links there anyway. But because they're, I guess, uh, Nancy and 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 are as, I think, they're the love mongers. They do a song, basically, a Led Zeppelin cover. Anyway, so that's kind of one that's, it's got the unity of character. I think it's, but then there's like, I love the movie Go, and that soundtrack is great. I, I made this where I was hoping to be a controversial point. So nine, the 1990s to me musically begins with "It Smells Like Teen Spirit." The musically, the 1990s ends with a song by Len called "Steal My Sunshine." Just to me, it's kind of like the feel good times are over. And I think the song came out in '99 in the summer when the movie came out, and then kind of after that, we were stuffed into boy band land and Britney Spears, this and that, and Christina Aguilera, and the post grunge of Nickelback and I don't know Days of the New. That oh, just I, again, maybe these artists meant to be authentic, but I think the record company said such a hold that they weren't allowed to really be who they were and were sort of commoditized. But the Go soundtrack to me is like, because it has that that track and a couple other really good ones that are kind of lean techno or dancey, I think that one's, that one's a really good, fun one too. It's kind of more lighthearted, whereas singles is a little bit more, yeah, it's, let's put on our grunge and kind of... <laughs> Let's grab our whiskey and be serious and listen to it. Let's everybody shut up. We're going to listen to the album and just we'll, like book club. We'll talk about it afterwards. Yeah. So those two, I probably think probably stand up, but there's other ones like the movie Sliver. Not a great movie. Has a pretty good soundtrack. There's a one of the Verve's first song is on, is on there. Cruel Intentions. It's a movie you couldn't drag me into see kicking and screaming in the theater because there's teenagers and they're really annoying and very vain and but i mean there's a pretty good soundtrack actually they they i think just <laughs> probably the intern or the low level record ploy that they assign to be like oh here's this douchey movie make a good sound make a soundtrack put lots of pop on it and they basically said f you and put all alternative music on it that's a very good one but i mean there's there's probably 10 or 12 that i could mention that you know i think take notes from go and the single soundtrack yeah yeah that's my long answer on that no, yeah, absolutely. So of those, is that like favorite 90s movie? Is it one of those two? Is it Go or is it Singles? Go is a favorite light movie where it, just, it's kind of, it got kind of thrown out there as like Pulp Fiction's Little Brother. But I mean, Pulp Fiction's such a great movie. Days Confused, talk about a movie that barely, barely has a plot. Right. Pulled off so well. My favorite reboot movie actually is the Brady Bunch movie because they didn't try to do whatever else, what everyone else did. 
they took this family from the 60s. No, this family in the 90s who thinks that they live in the 60s and they're completely clueless in every way and say stupid things like, hey, groovy chick. And I just thought that was really well done. You know, and then, and then like everybody on their block, the plot is that they want to they want to get the Brady Bunch like to kicked out of the neighborhood, foreclose on their house. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just thought it was that was really well done. You know, four star stupid movie, but but great. Yeah. You know, you know, there's probably 15 others I can list too that are sort of in the same quiver. That was kind of like the 90s did that well. Like the, one of my other favorites, yeah. not it probably is not, it's definitely not in my top 10 of the 90s, but the Adams Family. I thought we used to watch the old black and white Adams Family all the time on the like Nick at Night reruns and everything else. And I always thought that one, I, when I think of the old TV shows that got redone in the 90s as movies that they did a, a nice updating of, I always think of the Brady Bunch movie. I think of Adams Family. Yeah, the Adams Family, one discovery I made from that is that every goth dude I ever knew was like, I totally had a crush on Christina Ricci. Okay, <laughs> I, they, they will for the rest of their lives because she played, well, I don't remember the character's name, but Wednesday, she was yeah. in that movie. She basically played a cute, smart, goth, like, dream girl. Yeah. Like, I'm seeing, I, I just thought that was kind of fascinating that that movie and that character was so strong for a subset of people in American rock rock culture to be like, that's that's... That's my dream girl. Like I heard that a bunch of times in the nineties. So yeah. 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 Well, so to, to wrap us up here, do you have any parting thoughts? If, if there's somebody listening to this and maybe, maybe they didn't pay too much attention to music in the nineties. Maybe they were born after that. Maybe they just, maybe they were having kids during that decade and it just time completely flew by them. If somebody's looking for, good 90s music or if you've got any kind of parting thoughts on if you're looking for quintessential 90s sound uh, or or the hard to find stuff what's the last thing you'd want to say to somebody that's to to help them in their search well the cliff notes is that i do have on spotify there's a a playlist called the 90 days in the 90s it's got it's got the the cover is basically the graphic you'll pull it up right up it's got 90 songs of course it's about five and a half hours worth of music and of course it's got like the songs and albums that sort of you know the the chapters were named after or just a lot of stuff that influenced me in terms of like i didn't try to make it like oh i gotta include that song because that was big in the 90s there was some of that but there was also like cannonball by the breeders is going to be in there there's going to be a song by like pearl jam allison chains in there Uh, but there's also stuff that you wouldn't discover but i i think that just like I don't know. There's some great podcasts out there. I think patronize your local record store. I don't have a, I don't have a turntable, so I can't, I, don't, I can't and won't buy vinyl, but I mean, I can always find, like I'm the guy who goes in the record store. Like I just went into Rattleback Records today because they've been selling some of my books. And so I'm the guy who buys the t-shirt I don't need, the, you know, ACDC coffee mug, a bunch of postcards with like the BC boys and the Smiths on it. There's always that fun stuff. It's at, at, like Best Buy still exists, I guess, but they don't have that stuff. I don't even know if they have records. Circuit City's not around anymore. Best record store in the world, in my opinion, Amoeba Records out in LA. And there's, I think, one down downtown LA, but there's the main one is on is right on the Strip. You'll spend if you like music, you'll spend two or three hours in there. It's so great. It's like a, a Tower Records. It's more of an indie Tower Records on steroids. Just awesome, you know. So seek out those places, spend some time. I mean, if, if you don't like to do that, then don't do it. But I mean, I think people love music or are curious about music. As I think a lot of, I, I take this from my son who just turned 16, like Generation Z seems to be more interested in music that, like they're curious about, they're curious about, they're curious about Tribe Called Quest, or I like 
Veruca Salt, so what bands kind of sound like them? Like you can find them. That's my that's how I operate. So I think local record stores are just a great place to start. And you know, if you're not a super introvert or averse to conversation, talk to the person who owns the record store. People work there. And they'll t- they'll give you some. It's just like in High Fidelity, the scene where uh, Rick Tellerico is a local actor, and he's get, he's getting carted around by Jack Black, who's like, "So you like Echo the Bunnyman? What you don't you don't have any Jesus and Mary chain, dude? What's your problem?" And you know, you may leave spending too much money, but you probably find some things that you you wish you had before. So that's my suggestion: go to record stores, local independent ones, vinyl or not vinyl, everything everything that you can find. Spend some time, send some money there because, you know, they're like museums without all the don't touch rules. And you can, obviously, they're better than museums, gift shops. So that's what I would say. And ask your friends, ask your friends, ask your friends' parents. I don't know. I think that I just love talking about music. So maybe that's natural for me. But, uh, you know, podcast record stores, people who know, people have opinions, seek them out. Yeah, we had I I felt like I died a little bit inside. We had a little little kind of family owned record store in Libertyville, Illinois, where I went to high school, and it was called Dog Ear Music. And they had I believe they had like a little little homegrown recording studio down in the basement, and they had cassettes, they had CDs, they had records, they had old VHS tapes and hard to find stuff that you're not gonna you're not gonna find anywhere else. Any other video stores, the, the stuff that Suncoast Music in the mall would never stock, they had it in their store. Yeah. Oh, and I love that place. And I'd go in, I'd talk to the guys all the time. I still tell the story about that's the first place I ever saw the trailer for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, because the guy oh. actually took the four hours to download the trailer, and then everybody stood around his computer and watched it, because <laughs> we'd never done that before. But yeah, I, I just I, I feel so sad sometimes that all those little record stores are, for the most part, they're pretty much gone. So it's it's good well, to it's good to hear there's still some spots owner, left. And I don't know. I mean, I I discovered I I didn't know this until I think I read a New York Times article that the, the pandemic, after the pandemic, like record stores and record stores had a rebound. So there's yeah. still enough of them out there. I think some of it is that you know there's people who made their money working in tech and healthcare and got their their have a nice life packaged and were told to go home and they decided I can go work another cubicle and jump out the 50th floor window or I'm going to get a little bit of money and start a record store and learn how to make enough money to survive. And I think enough people have done that, that, and they're determined about those institutions being there. So I don't know, don't lose hope there. There's still plenty out there. You just gotta, it's, it's, you know, it's like a treasure hunt. You gotta go find them, but that's the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andy, thank you so much. Uh, like I said, I, I had a lot of fun reading your book, and it is the so the website you got is www.90daysinthe90s.com. Where else can people go to find your book if they want a copy of it? Yeah, if you want a signed copy, it's 90daysinthe90s.com. You know, nine zero, even though the actual uh, the title is ninety, the word spelled out, ninety days in the nineties. Obviously, you get it on Amazon if you're someone who buys everything on Amazon. You just point and click there; it's there. Same with Barnes and Noble. I mean, I think there's a couple other online real t- retailers. And I'm starting to get in some bookstores. If you're in Downtown Chicago, Barber's Bookstores down on below Macy's on State Street has it now. The bookseller in Lincoln Square has it. I'm going to speak there in, in October. And starting to turn up a couple record stores. Reckless Records has it. Rattleback Records has it. Kind of like where people would go to buy music and find that one book about music. Some people are buying it there. But yeah, you can buy it direct from me or any of those little retailers or also Amazon. Just kind of depends on where you shop for music and books about music. Yeah. 
Oh, so awesome. So awesome. So go pick it up. If you're going, if you're local here in Chicago, go to one of those spots and pick it up or pick it up on the website as well. I know we've got a lot of listeners around the world and around the States. So, you know, and, and a lot of people who are going to totally dig the, the the love fest of 90s music that you got going on. It just all the references you drop in there is just, like I said, I was frantically scribbling a list of, I got to find this. I got to look for this. Like, oh, I forgot about that. I need to go. <laughs> I need to go update my Spotify playlist. So, but Andy, thank you so much. I had so much fun talking with you. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. It's good talking to you. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the 30 something movie podcast. Again, Andy, thank you so much for being here with me. Go grab a copy of Andy's book. If you have not already www.90daysinthe90s.com and the 90s are numbers not letters hit up our website if you have not been there lately 30podcast.com and the 30 is let is numbers not letters 30podcast.com you can find all of our past episodes our patreon stuff all of that great stuff there go check it out our next episode's coming up so this month we've got our patreon is best motorcycle movies you can tell that Pat was the one that planned that one out. And then our Patreon shorts for this month will be Creep Show from 1982 and The Secret of Nim from 1982. Next few episodes that we got coming up, we've got Wayne's World and White Men Can't Jump. I've also got a very special episode where we did a Star Wars trivia showdown with the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast and the Docking Bay 77 podcast. So that one is going to be coming out probably within the next couple of weeks or so. So really, really looking forward to that one as well. And then, like I said, we're finishing off the month with White Men Can't Jump. If you want to get ahead to September, for our Patreon exclusive episode, we're looking at The Dark Crystal from 1982. And then our Patreon shorts will be Cat People from 1982 and Q, The Winged Serpent from 1982. The regular episodes coming up in September, we've got Medicine Man, we've got a very special 40th anniversary, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, then we're going to do Lorenzo's Oil, Forever Young, and Death Becomes Her. So those are the ones we've got coming up over the course of the next month or two. Again, everybody, go check out Andy Fry's book, 90 Days in the 90s, and then check out all of our past stuff on 30podcast.com. In the meantime, everybody... Be excellent to each other. Go listen to some really good music. Go read a good book. Go watch some good movies. And we will see you back here next time. 